Hello and welcome to Manageable Conversations, the podcast where we speak to leaders across industry sectors. In each episode, we discover what helped them in their career, how they stay sharp, and their tips for managers to get the best from their teams. I'm Farley Thomas, the co-founder of Manageable. We hope this podcast inspires you to be a great leader by learning from others. People want to feel valued. They want to feel part of a team. They want to feel part of an an enterprise that is on the move, a clear idea of where it's going and is successful. And I think if you can foster that kind of esprit de corps, you know, you're on to a, you know, you're on to a winning formula. That's Robert Pickering, who spent 23 years at Casanova, the last independent British investment bank. He's recently published Blue Blood, a first-hand account of the firm's evolution during his time there, ultimately becoming its first chief executive. In this episode, Robert talks about his no-nonsense leadership style and the challenges he faced during two major transitions, going from a partnership to a corporation and then entering into a joint venture with JP Morgan. So Robert, welcome to this episode of Manageable Conversations. Good morning. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. I wonder if we could start with your take on your own leadership style. I think it's important to have a clear objective for people, you know, a clear strategy for, what, for where the firm's going and what you're trying to do. But other than that, I found that the best thing was to surround myself with people who were at least as good and preferably better than me. The, the, the two things which, you know, which occurred to me, well, one is um, I think it's important for a, for a chief executive to be visible. And I think other than that, I had a fairly no-nonsense management style. I learned fairly early on in my career that while you have to be prepared to listen to people, listening, to, allowing people to, to, to complain to you was not necessarily a good thing for yourself as a leader or for the organization. So those were the three things that occurred to me, if you like, about my own management style. Building on that, Robert, what about how they were shaped? Well, I suppose it was a combination of, of positive and negative role models. So positive in looking at looking at the kind of people whose leadership style I admired. So I used to sit when I was a young lawyer with um, a chap called Bill Tudor John, who subsequently became senior partner of Allen and Overy. And he was very much a lead from the front kind of person. And I guess partly because it just appealed to my own personality. I thought that his was a style that I would like to emulate. You know, he had a close-knit team around him. He was very bright and very capable himself, but he didn't try to hog the limelight and created this sort of esprit de corps. And, you know, I've had other more negative role models from a leadership point of view as well, where, you know, people either didn't communicate about what they were doing, or they were secretive, or they didn't share, or they weren't able to delegate. And those things I reacted against personally. And I thought, well, when I became a leader myself, I thought, I I don't want to go about it in that way. And I want to try to learn from, you know, learn from what I saw as as negative role models, if you like. There's something you leave out that's left me um, intrigued after reading your book cover to cover, Robert, which is you having that interview. And I think it was Christopher Smith who, who, who called you after you initially turned down the role at Casanova and then persuaded you to, to reconsider. Now, you don't explain what might have caused him to do that, especially as you say yourself that you were quite different to the, to the usual hire of theirs. Care to speculate? 
Well, it's a good question. Somebody else asked me that the other day. And I think what it was, was that Casanova at the time was in the, at the beginning of a process of modernization. It was a period of growth in the city generally in the run up to Big Bang. And I think they wanted to recruit people like me with a professional background. I mean, I turned the initial job offer down really because I got cold feet. I, I was concerned about the firm's uh, image and whether I would fit in from a cultural point of view. So I got cold feet and turned it down. And I think probably Christopher must have sensed that that was the case and that my stated reason for turning it down, which was that I wanted to stay at Allen and Overy, the law firm, for a bit longer and get some more experience, wasn't actually the real reason. You know, it was remarkable, really, that he, my having turned it down, and as I say in the book, realizing pretty much as soon as I put the phone down that I'd made a terrible mistake, that he chose to pick up the phone and, and ask me to reconsider. And I've often thought about it over the years, that it's on these... Mm on these accidents that, that life turns. You talk of a few such accidents or strokes of luck. Was there some planning or ambition that contributed? Clearly. I mean, luck, luck plays a, a role, I think, in anyone's career who's successful. But no, I think what probably distinguished me within the firm was that I had a very clear idea in my own mind about the direction that the firm should take. And this was a firm that didn't have a lot of time for introspection. It didn't sit around thinking about what its strategy should be. In fact, there was no forum to do that. But I went in there, and I think just because of my personality, I spent a lot of time thinking really from very early on in my career about the way that the firm should should go. And I think I felt that the, the firm underestimated its capabilities and what it could do. And of course, it was at a time in the city when a lot of the other old-style old merchant banks, the likes of Warburg's and Morgan Grenfell and, and, and Schroeder's and what have you, were trying to get into the business that Casanova had traditionally been in, which was this thing called corporate broking. And this was all part mm. of the, the formation of these conglomerates around the time of Big Bang. And I thought, well, they're all trying to get into our business. Why shouldn't we try to get into their business? And I think, you know, I sort mm. of started banging on about it when I was youngster, and it became more vocal as I became more senior. And I think eventually, partly because of internal, but partly because of external developments, you know, the people within the firm saw that actually maybe this was the way to go. And then if you're the one mm. who's been shouting about it, they say, well, okay, if you think this is what we should do, go away and make it happen. So I think that was really the clarity of um, vision, I think, which probably helped me, you know, get on at quite an early age, first to run the corporate finance department, which is one of the two biggest departments, and then to run the whole firm a few years later. I'm curious about what, where that obvious skill or quality of yours comes from, and, and whether there's a link with you having been an outsider, as you say yourself, Robert. Yes, well, it's interesting. I mean, Outsider is a relative term. Um, I mean, I was, I was mm. a, bit of, a bit of an outsider as far as Casanova was concerned, um, because as I, again, as I mentioned in the book, when I joined the firm in 1985, half the 37 partners were old Etonians. Um, yeah. So, but having said that, I'd been to Westminster School in Oxford, so I wasn't exactly on the wrong side of the tracks. But I think that, um, mm. you know, my parents were both Australia. And although I was born in, in London and grew up, you know, grew up in the UK. I think there's quite a lot of Aussie in me. And as you know, the sort of stereotypical image of Aussies is they sort of cut through, you know, the verbiage and try to get to the heart of the matter. And I think there's, there's a bit of that. And I think probably that, that really accounts for the kind of mentality that I, that I approach problems with. But on the other hand, if you're overly blunt, it tends to um, 
produce an opposite reaction. So I've had to learn to temper that a little bit over the years. There's there's another theme that I uh, wanted to get your point of view on, Robert, which is coping with transitions, including ones that feel like adversity. And, and at one point, it felt as if coaching also was part of how you coped. But I, I wonder if you could just share some learnings about resilience and getting through. Well, I guess there were t- two phases where uh, of my career where that was very relevant. One was when, if you go back to uh, 2000, 2001, Casanova had been a very traditional old-style partnership and in many respects was still, up until the 80s, a, a kind of family firm or a quasi-family firm. And then for various reasons to do with competitive pressures and, and all the rest of it, we decided that uh, the partnership structure wasn't right for us anymore in, in, in the year 2000. So we decided to incorporate, i.e. turn ourselves into a company, raise some external capital, which again was unprecedented for us. And at the same time, we announced that we were intending to float on the stock exchange. At, at the same time as all that was happening, there was some management change in the air. And I, and um, who was running the corporate finance department at that stage, and, a, and a, another chap who was running the equities business, were effectively made joint chief executives. And I was, um, yeah, I would have been 40, just coming up to 41. So I was pretty mm-hmm. young. If you go into, if you have a firm which has a very clear vision of itself as one thing, and in our case, you know, an all-star partnership with all the cultural baggage that comes with that, and then you suddenly say, well, we're going in a completely mm-hmm. different direction. Uh, I mean, that is really quite a disruptive process. It's a bit like kicking over an anthill. And I was, you know, quite an inexperienced, I'd been running a big department for a couple of years, but this was a a huge step Mm. up at quite an early age when I wasn't really that experienced. I mean, that was really a very stressful time for me. I mean, I was was clear that Mm. it was the right thing to do strategically. So I didn't really sort of have doubts about that. But just dealing with the human fallout of that was very, very difficult. You know, you have a lot of disappointed people who wanted to become partners and now they can't because we're not a partnership. Some of the partners don't Mm -hmm. like change because it was a very cozy environment before. So you've got a lot of confused, upset, and occasionally angry people around you that uh, all want a piece of you and want to to talk to you about stuff. And that, for a relatively young person, without that much experience Mm. of running a big firm, was a very stressful time. And I found, looking back on my career in a way, that was the most stressful period. And how do you get through it? I mean, I think I I developed a variety of of, of coping strategies, if you like. Partly to do with delegation and simply not taking on too much of not taking too much on myself because I think I mm. you know I had a pretty good idea of my own strengths and my own weaknesses and sitting there listening to people say that they were very disappointed and they were very worried and they weren't sure that the shares they were being given were worth anything I would find myself getting irritated and upset so I thought you know what that's not a good thing for me to do so I, I won't spend my time doing this I'll find other people within the firm of appropriate seniority who can do that and who are much better at that. And then gradually what happens is that you, you you sort of grow into the job and you get on top of things and that gives you mm. a greater sense of confidence. So that was one. The, the, the other part really was much later in my career when we, we, we sold half our firm to JP Morgan. We went into this quite unusual joint venture structure. And mm. then suddenly you had a completely different you know dynamic because you had a 50% shareholder in JP Morgan with very different ideas about how they wanted things to be run. And suddenly you weren't mm. the, you know, the single voice of authority and you had to think about managing up as well as managing down. And that's when I personally found coaching was very useful to help me cope with that. Since you've taken us to this uh, joint venture stage, there were a few aspects of the, the 
meeting of cultures that I wanted to find out a little bit more about. You, you talk at one point about virtue signaling versus having more honest and, and, and a more honest and direct culture. Could you say a bit more about that? It's something I thought about a lot. I thought about it a lot at the time and subsequently. And, you know, this business of culture and culture clash, it, it was, it was um, a fascinating experience in many ways. I mean, it was very successful, but culturally, you know, in, in, in human terms, it was very, you know, again, it, it, it was quite stressful and quite hairy. And it was interesting watching how people, I mean, I, I think I used the expression in the book at one point, we were the same kinds of people. I'm talking about us and the J.P. Morgan people. But because the incentives were different and the kind of behavior that was rewarded was different, people behaved differently. And so to give one example, Mm. Casanova had this very old-style British military culture. By that stage, not everybody was old-style British or military, but the culture and cultures generally in organizations tend to be very enduring. And there was a quite a direct sort of military way of communicating with each other, not in the sense of barking out orders, but we generally speaking said what we meant. And mm. if people, you know, if people were sort of boastful or vainglorious or, you know, building themselves up, they would be cut down to size quite quickly. And so generally speaking, mm. it, it didn't happen. So to give an example on, you know, if we did a big, you know, if we did a big deal, you know, people who were only peripherally involved wouldn't wouldn't go around trying to claim credit because everybody knew it was a small enough firm. Everybody knew what people were doing. So if somebody did that, the behavior not only would not mm. be rewarded, it would actually be penalized. JP Morgan was different where if you didn't um, sort of big up your achievements, if you didn't talk about all the stuff you'd been doing, if you didn't sort of try to get your fingers on transactions and revenue pools that you were only peripherally involved with, people actually mm. thought that you were that you were not showing sufficient commitment. And as a result, they tended to think mm. less of you because of it. And, and because that sort of behavior was rewarded, that's what people did. And so it, it showed to me the, the very powerful effect of incentives in an organization. And it's not just direct incentives, you know, in terms of, you know, what you have to do to get, you know, to get a bigger bonus or, so, or, or something like that. It's also, you know, how you're seen within the organization. And that was quite a difficult thing for me and a lot of my colleagues to, to navigate. Because again, the sort of British inclination when you see people behaving like that is to make fun of them or to laugh at them, uh, often to their face. You know, that was quite a difficult thing for me and quite a number of my colleagues to navigate. You do also talk about, um, or rather, you rail, you railed, and perhaps still rail against being held hostage or with, um, you know, departures if you didn't pay up. Yeah, well, it's again, it's a feature of the investment banking industry that um, the the kind of behavior which uh, is quite deeply ingrained in these organizations is if you're asked to do something, you or if there's change of foot, or somebody wants to modify your conditions of employment, whatever it is, you basically you you threaten to leave and ask for a pay rise. And, And coping with that, is very much part of the job of anyone who who works in an investment bank. And some investment banks, you know, the way they tend to operate is that that kind of behavior, again, is sort of understood to be what goes on. So so it becomes a sort of vicious circle where you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ask for a pay rise. And if if they don't give it to me, I'm going to threaten to leave. And that's likely to result in my being given more money or more responsibility. Therefore, that kind of behavior is rewarded. And so it goes on. 
I had a I had a very strong conviction at uh, at Casanova and in and in in most well established investment banks, really through empirical evidence and observation over the years, that the franchise of a decent firm is actually much stronger than any individual, however talented that individual should be, and that I think it's very bad for the organisation to allow this sort of cycle of blackmail, you know, to perpetuate itself. So I, I wouldn't do it when I was running Casanova. And again, Casanova was probably a, a, a less hard-edged and more compliant culture. It's quite important, I think, if you're leading an organisation to set that from the top and for, for people to understand. And they learn quickly that, you know, if you come to me and tell me that you're going to leave if I don't give you a pay rise, you'd better be prepared to leave because I'm not going to plead with you to make you stay. And so that's really the reference is that I found that I I find that kind of behavior in any kind of organization very corrosive to the organization and to organization's culture. And I think it's very important not to tolerate it. You know, going back to what I was saying earlier on, when you asked me about leadership style, that I think you never quite know how the people see you. But I think people knew that, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't try it on with me in that way. Perhaps changing tack from leading to being led, I just wanted your current take on what a good manager should focus on, because you you, you talk about David not being a shoulder to cry on, which left me feeling like there wasn't much care. Yes, I mean, it's it's an interesting point. I mean, and, you know, the incidents that I refer to in the book all took place you know, 15 plus years ago. Again, it goes back to this old style, British, slightly military, slightly stiff upper lip culture that the firm had. You know, no, for example, nobody ever shook hands with each other in the office. I mean, it was, again, a funny little point of difference between us and JP Morgan. You know, every, whenever there was a meeting at JP Morgan, they'd shake hands with you. Mm. For, for us, this was very strange. I think I've only ever shaken hands with David Mayhew twice in my life. Once was when I met him. And the second time was when we completed the British Telecom rights issue in um, in 2001, which at the time was the largest ever equity offering in the London market. So he shook my hand then. But, you know, it just wasn't that kind of culture. And it, it clearly didn't suit a lot of people who wanted much more in the way of continuous feedback. They wanted to see a much clearer um career progression. I mean, there was one chap in particular who I recruited, very, very good guy, mm. very good with clients, super bright. And much to my uh, chagrin, he he resigned after a few years. And he went off to join one of the big head, headhunting firms. In fact, I think he subsequently became head of that or certainly on the board. So he did extremely well. But he, he went to this mm. firm specifically because they, they had completely the opposite approach. It was absolutely clear what you had to do you know what you were, what grade you were likely to achieve at a particular time, and all and, and all the rest of it, and that was the environment he wanted. And there are a lot of mm. other people a bit like that, and I completely understand why that would be. Our approach was much more not exactly sink or swim, as it wasn't as extreme as that. But I mean, you the people mm. who did well tended to be self-starters. They didn't sit around waiting to be told what to do. They came up with ideas. I mean, if you look at my career, it was my idea to go to New York. It was my idea to set up the mergers and acquisitions department. And it was my idea to move the corporate business more towards financial advisory rather than corporate broking. No one said to me, Robert, we want to do this. Would you please make it happen? I was the one who had the idea mm. and then took it to the partners. And that's, that, that was the kind of way it tended to work in that firm. 
And but it get this this thing about it's interesting this business about leadership and management now. You know, if you ask a lot of chief executives, you say, "Well, what are the most important attributes?" They'll a lot of the, you'll get mm. a lot of stuff about being a good listener and empathy and all this kind of stuff. I, I take a slightly different view, which is that in reality, the job of a leader of a chief executive is to take probably three or four big decisions a year and to get them right. That is ultimately what your job is, mm. in my opinion. If you don't get those right then none of the rest of the stuff is going to turn you into a successful business. People want to feel valued. They want to feel part of a team. They want to feel part of an, an enterprise that is on the move, has a clear idea of where it's going, and is successful. And I think if you mm. can foster that kind of esprit de corps, you know, you're on to a, you know, you're on to a winning formula. But, you know, there were definitely individuals, and I can think of a, several examples at, at Casino, where people were effectively left behind, you know, with some quite, in one or two cases, some quite serious consequences for them as individuals. And if we'd been running the firm now, we would have worked much harder at helping and supporting those people. Whereas in those days, it was a bit more, you know, it was a bit more sink or swim. So staying with leadership, one thing that initially puzzled you was, you know, when you would give presentations, sometimes quite dramatic events that you were announcing. And then you specifically make reference to the lack of questions. What's your take on that? Because it, it really does seem quite standard for leaders to be trotting out, you know, having town halls and announcing this, that and the other. And then there's this sense I get from your, from your experience that people don't care. They just want to do their job. You should never lose sight of the fact that the majority of people in any firm, they, they come to work, you know, to put food on the table, to provide for their families, to, um, you know, to, to fund their hobby of riding bicycles or running triathlons or whatever it is they do. Um, yes. And, and I'm, I'm not derived. There's nothing wrong with that. that. I mean, that's the reality of it. And that, mm. that um, they don't spend their time, lots and lots of their time, thinking about the future of the firm they work for or whether it should make an acquisition here or there or whether it should expand into the US market or Latin America or China. That's just not the work, what they're thinking about. You know, they're th- as I say, they're thinking about, you know, whether they can run the London Marathon in under four hours or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And of course, it's a bit disappointing as a, as a leader sometimes, because of course, people who get to the top of firms are the ones who do spend a disproportionate amount of their time thinking about these things. And certainly that was true in my case. And um, so when you go to a lot of trouble to prepare a presentation and you deliver it and you get a relatively low turnout and very few questions, it's a bit disappointing. But you learn not to take it personally quite quickly, or at least I did. I just wondered if we could end with a few tips that come to mind for managers of teams. What would you advise them to do in order to have high levels or optimum levels of performance and well-being? Again, it slightly goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. I think the most important thing, if, whether you're running a team or a department or a, or, a, or an entire firm, have the confidence to surround yourself with people who are at least as good as you and ideally better than you, and then give them mm. clear instructions and let them do their job. And, and I think a related point is that it's very important to be aware of your own strengths and your own, but particularly your own weaknesses. My personal biggest weakness, I think, is, as a, as a, in, in, a, in a professional sense is that I'm impatient. Being impatient can lead you to make hasty uh, decisions, which ultimately prove to be wrong. I am aware Mm. of the fact that I have a tendency to be impatient. So I surrounded myself with very patient people. So if we had a big big decision to make, for example, about whether to close a business or get into a business, I made sure that that it was well discussed with people who were more patient than I was, and so that they would Mm. sort of... um, 
counteract my own uh, weakness in that in that respect. So I think that's that's a very important aspect of running a team. You know, obviously there's got to be clarity about what you're trying to achieve, and I think you, you know again you've got to be quite mindful of you know of, of incentives and what sort of incentives you're giving to people and what kind of behaviour that's likely to lead to because. I think that's in many respects. It's it's certainly one of, if not the most important thing in terms of setting the culture of an organisation. It's been fantastic talking to you, and I just wanted to close by thanking you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you enjoyed this manageable conversation, there are many other perspectives we offer our community of managers worldwide who coach and individuals from all walks of life who benefit from being coached. That's all from me. I'm Farley Thomas. Until next time.